Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's great to be with you, Danny. Thank you again for the invitation to be here. I love to be at Southeastern. Uh, when Danny calls, I come. And, uh, and, and literally, any time Danny gives me an opportunity to preach the Word of God here at Southeastern, I love to come. I love what's happening here. I love to be around Danny. Um, I love his love for the Lord Jesus Christ, his passion for the gospel, for missions and evangelism. I love the way he loves his wife and those boys. I love to see that family. Uh, The older you grow, you want to be around people in the Christian life who encourage you. And Danny's one of those people I never fail to be encouraged when I'm around him. And so you're blessed to have Danny and the family here in your midst, and uh, it's my joy to open the Word of God to you. I also need to thank Danny and Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for giving me a president. Uh, This month, we announced that Dr. Scott Swain is the new president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. I'm the chancellor of RTS. We have nine campuses in eight states and in two foreign countries, and uh, RTS Orlando is our largest campus. And Dr. Swain is a graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He studied under Paige Patterson and under Danny Aiken. And then somewhere along the way, a Presbyterian Sith Lord got hold of him and turned him to the dark side. And uh, that's how I got hold of him. Uh, it, it's funny, Mary Moeller asked Al when she saw that, that Scott had become the president, she said, Al, is this a good thing? <laughs> and I assured her it was. Well, Presbyterians, we need all the help we can get. So keep on turning out those presidents for me, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open the Word of God uh, to Matthew chapter 26. Um, Danny told me that there, there, there's been a chapel theme focusing on Christology, and so he wanted me to preach on Christology. And asking a Presbyterian preacher to preach on Christology is like throwing Br'er Rabbit in the briar patch. I mean, I just, what, what better theme to preach on than the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to think, maybe from a surprising passage for you, you might think of other passages to speak on the subject of the person, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at this rather interesting passage in Matthew 26, verses 1 to five, it is the Passover week. It is just a few days before Jesus will be crucified to bear our sins. And uh, he has just ended his uh, great exposition of the final judgment. And he is talking about his coming betrayal and crucifixion. And in that passage, I want you to be on the lookout for two or three things. I I wish I could preach a sermon series on this passage uh, to you. Maybe I'll get to do that sometime. But this morning, let's focus our attention on three things in this passage. One, Jesus knows. Two, Jesus knows and chose. And three, God is in control 
even in Jesus' death. Jesus knows, Jesus knows and chose, and God is in control in Jesus' death. Now, before we read God's word, let's ask for his help and blessing. Our Lord and our God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade and fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Sanctify us with your truth. Your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that we may be, be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Jesus is just finishing that great discourse on the final judgment in Matthew chapter 25, and you read these words in Matthew 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And that is a formula that appears at each of the great discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find it in Matthew 7, 28, Matthew 11, 1, Matthew 13, 53, and Matthew 19, 1. That formula, when Jesus had finished speaking these things, alerts you to the fact that the sermon is over and we have entered into a new section of the book. And so this great sermon on the end times is over and now Matthew is back to what's happening in the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. And here again, not for the first time, Jesus informs the disciples ahead of time concerning his betrayal and trial and crucifixion and death on their behalf. You see the words again, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and that the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, Jesus has said this to the disciples over and over. 
probably for a number of reasons. One is the disciples have a hard time taking this in. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, John explicitly tells us we didn't understand what Jesus was saying to us. Now, by the way, that's one of the things that proves to me the Bible is true. Because if you were making up that story, you would never have admitted that, claiming to be part of the inner circle of the God-man. You never would have said, by the way, we had no clue what he was telling us. It's one of the ways that I see that the Bible is true. John just says, we didn't understand. But Jesus has been saying this over and over to them, First of all, because this is going to be, to this point, the greatest trial of their lives. Yes, for Jesus, his his arrest, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, the crucifixion, is going to be the great trial of his life. But consistently in the gospel, Jesus is not focused in on himself He is full of compassion for people and his heart is so that his own disciples will survive the trial that they are going to go through when they see the one that they call the Christ, the son of the living God, hanging on a tree, dying. And so over and over, he said to them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. The leaders of my people are going to betray me. I'm going to die. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, turn all the way back to Matthew 12, verse 40. Let's walk through a few of these examples in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, in in light of the end of the story, the reference there is unmistakable. No doubt, Jesus' words to the disciples would have provoked the scratching of a few noggins when he first said it. But looking back on that statement, it would have been crystal clear to them what he was saying. But he's even more clear when you turn to Matthew 16, verse 21. In Matthew 16, 21, we read from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Couldn't couldn't be clearer than that. I am going to go suffer and be killed and be raised. Then turn forward to Matthew 17, verse 9. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You can't rise from the dead unless you're dead first. So there again, Jesus is predicting his death as well as his resurrection. Then just a few verses forward to Matthew 17, verse 12. So also, like John the Baptist, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. So Jesus is again saying to his followers, I am going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel. Then in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, again, very explicitly Jesus says, While they were gathering together in Galilee, 
Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. So again, a very explicit teaching about what is going to happen to him. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. Jesus knows what is coming. And in his kindness, in his pastoral care for his disciples, he's trying to prepare them for what is coming so that their faith will not be lost, so that their faith can be strengthened, so that they can endure the trial of his crucifixion and death and burial and all the trauma that that involves. He's preparing them for that. And then look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And then, of course, the great verse, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Disciples, hear me loud and clear. I am here. The re- my purpose in life is to give my life as a ransom for many. So here's what I want you to think about, my friends. What we learn in those passages and what we learn in the passage before us in Matthew 26, especially verse 2, is that Jesus knows what is coming. Now, my guess is most of you have known that from the time that you trusted in Jesus alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. But have you thought about what that meant for Jesus? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Jesus to know that his whole life and ministry, that that day is coming where he will experience something that no human being has ever or will ever experience. He will bear the sins of a world of sinners alone. He will bear an infinite and eternal punishment. Do you understand that those consigned to perdition eternally all together collectively in infinite duration will never equal what Jesus suffered for us on the cross. And he knew that day was coming. Can you imagine what it would have been to live like that? Picture this. You've been called by God to serve on the mission field. And you've gone faithfully, you and your wife and your children. 
and 13 years into your work, the tribe that you've been serving turns on you and they kill your wife and your children and you alone survive. What would it have been like to go to the field knowing that day was coming? And not only knowing that that day was coming, but knowing the day and hour of it. Jesus did that and more for you. Don't don't you ever underestimate what Jesus' knowledge means for you. You know, so often in the Christian life, when things hit me in the gut and take my breath away and leave me gasping for air, one of the thoughts is, Lord, I'm glad I didn't know that was coming. You know, I I ministered for 12 years with one of my best friends in the same congregation. And in the year that he left, One of my other best friends on the staff also left to pastor another church, and my executive pastor ran off with the wife of one of my deacons. That year was a gut punch that I will remember till my last days, and I am really glad that I didn't know that it was coming. Jesus knew what was coming. Just just pause right now and thank your Savior. It didn't stop him. It didn't deter him. He knew it was coming, and he kept walking. He kept going. Why? Because he loves you. Can you imagine the grief? No wonder the Gospels tell us that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Have you ever studied B.B. Warfield's great article, The Emotional Life of Our Lord? What he does is he goes through the Gospels and he looks at every emotional ascription to the humanity of Jesus, and he makes this observation. We are never, ever told that Jesus laughed. Now, I don't mean that Jesus was a sourpuss with no sense of humor, but it's very interesting that we're never told that. But he grieved and he sorrowed and he wept And so it's no wonder that he is called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But do you know what what one emotional attribute is specified of him more than anything else in the Gospels? His compassion. Now think of that. If I had had to bear the sorrows of Jesus, I would have been sorrier for myself than anybody in the world. And Did Jesus' sorrows drive him inside of himself? No. They flowed out in infinite compassion for lost sinners and feeble, faltering, fumbling disciples. And his heart of love showed itself in his compassion. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That's the Jesus that you serve. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but not caught up in his own sorrow, but overflowing in love and compassion for the lost and for the least and for the limping. Jesus knows. There's another thing I want you to see in this. Jesus knows 
And yet, he still chose to go this way for you. Jesus knows what is coming. After two days and the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. We need to understand that Jesus not only knows what is coming, but he is willing to embrace what is coming. He chooses the cross. Do you remember John 10, 18? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Please understand this. Jesus was not the victim of Herod. Jesus was not the victim of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was not the victim of the Jewish mob. Jesus was not the victim of the plotting of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. He was the victim of no one. He laid down his life deliberately. He gave himself for us. No one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. And here again in this very passage, we see that because check, check the juxtaposition. As Jesus says, in two more days, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified and I'm going to die. And the people who are the ones who are going to perpetrate that injustice against Jesus are simultaneously, look at verses three to five, they are simultaneously meeting and plotting and here's what they decide. We can't do it this week. If we do it this week during the festival, there'll be riots, people will kill us. So we're not going to do it this week. And it's as if Jesus says, yes, you are. It's going to happen this week because I'm going to be lifted up on the Passover so that everybody knows I am the Passover lamb. The blood of bulls and goats do not forgive sin. My blood pays for the sins of the world. Behold the lamb of God who takes upon himself the sins of the world. Yes, you are going to crucify me this week on the Passover. Yes, you are. No, we're not. Yes, you are. And I choose to do it. I choose to die. I choose to embrace this crucifixion, this suffering. You know, in our own lifetime, we have seen some people, even some people who claim to be evangelicals, say that the atonement is cosmic child abuse. Now, my friends, that is the deepest blasphemy. But you see, this very passage proves that that is an utterly false and stupid statement. 
because the son chooses to be the sacrifice. No one ever chose to be abused as a child. But the Son of God chooses to be the sacrifice. He says to the Father, I want to take their place, Father. I understand the demands not simply of your justice, but of our justice, and I want to take their place. I will bear sin, Father for your glory and their everlasting good. This is no cosmic child abuse. This is the Son of Man willingly embracing his doom for you. Jesus knows, and he still chose to go to the tree. Just take that in, brothers and sisters. One last thing. This passage makes it amply clear that God is in control even in Jesus' death. Here Jesus says to his disciples, two more days and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified and the chief priests and elders say, no, we're not going to do it in two more days. No, we're not going to do it during the festival. We're gonna need to do it some other time. Well, guess when it happened? Just as Jesus said it, if, if if you look at the accounts in all the gospels, they emphasize the divine timing of this. Go back, for instance, the beginning of John 13. As Jesus is talking to the disciples in the upper room and it emphasized Jesus knows that the appointed hour has come he knows that he's going to be betrayed he even knows who is going to betray him and it doesn't matter whether the chief priests and scribes who are the wicked perpetrators have decided they're not going to do it it's going to happen on God's time and it's fascinating to me that the apostles and the early Christians got this let me just give you a couple of examples turn with me to Acts chapter 2 in the preaching of Peter uh, you know he's the great evangelistic message on the day of Pentecost, and his main, his main point is simply this. Few people have crucified the Messiah. And they get that from the message, and they go, oh my heavens, we've crucified the Messiah. Brothers, what shall we do? And then he preaches the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Well, here's how he explains it to them. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So notice how those two things are put together. God's in control. He's delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to the cross by the hands of sinful men. God's sovereign, we're responsible, right together, no apology, no explanation. If I had been there, my hand would have gone up. But Peter, stop right there, just right there, stop. Could you explain that? No explanation. God is sovereign, God is in control, and you're responsible. By the way, that's biblical logic. Some people say God is responsible, therefore we are not. 
God is sovereign, therefore we're not responsible. Some people say we're responsible, therefore God is not sovereign. The Bible says God is sovereign, therefore we are responsible. Don't ever, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. God is sovereign, we're responsible. But Peter's not the only one who gets this. The early Christians got this. Turn to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, we see, you remember when Peter and John got thrown into prison and the early, the the Christians are praying like crazy that they won't end up dead. (laughs) And they're praying and we read this. For truly in this city, we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. What? They're against Jesus. They wickedly put him to death. They were doing exactly what you predestined to occur. You're responsible, God is sovereign. God is in control even in Jesus' death. And Paul gets this too. Listen to Romans 8, 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That phrase, go ask your Greek professors, go ask your New Testament professors, Delivered up is a technical phrase. You find it in Matthew, Acts, and Romans. And it is always used of the handing over of Jesus into the hands of his enemies, his betrayal into the hands of his enemies for them to crucify him. In Matthew 26, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up. Paul says, who did that? The Father delivered him up. You see, that's emphasizing the priesthood of God the Father in the sacrifice of the Son. And by the way, even John 3.16 emphasizes that. You know, John 3.16 is probably one of the first verses we ever memorize. And we, we we, we think of the love of Jesus in the gospel, and that's true. But listen to it closely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Who is the so loved about? Who is the subject of the so loved? The Father in the giving of the Son. John is talking about God giving his Son and demonstrating his love in the giving of his Son. My friends, God is in control even in the most unjust event in the history of of the moral universe. There is nothing more unjust in the history of this world than the death of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says absolutely clearly God was in control of that. Now here's the good news. If God is in control of that and he's working it together for your good, there is no obscene There is no heartbreaking and soul-crushing thing that can ever happen to you that can separate you from the love of God and his good purposes for you. Nothing. And does that sovereignty make us indifferent to the salvation of lost sinners? Not at all. 
Because remember, the formula is because God is sovereign, we're responsible. I, I love John 13 from about 5 to 12. John 13, 5 to 12. It's the passage where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And he tells us in that passage, he knows he's about to be betrayed. We're told that the devil enters Judas Iscariot to do it that moment. Later in the passage, Jesus even tells the disciples, the guy who dips with me is the one who's going to betray me. And yet, when Jesus is going around washing the disciples' feet, do you know whose feet he also washed? Judas. That dawned on me about 30 years ago. And I was reading Calvin's commentary on John 13, 5 to 12. You go check me out on this. And when he gets to that point and meditates on the fact that Jesus washed Judas, the betrayer's feet, the feet of the man that he knew was going to betray him, and in fact, about whom he had said, this man has been appointed by God as a son of perdition, to betray him. So this is Jesus in effect saying, this man is a reprobate, but he washes his feet. And here's what Calvin says about that. Jesus was opening the gate of repentance yet one more time to Judas, and he would not walk through. You wonder whether you can preach the gospel to everyone? Well, let me give you a little test. Are they breathing? Are they breathing? Because Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. And he's opening the gate of repentance to him yet one more time. If they're breathing, brothers and sisters, we offer the gospel. Because God is, is sovereign and we're responsible. Jesus knows. Jesus knows and chose. God is in control even in Jesus' death. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would bless it to our comfort and encouragement, to your glory, and to our greater love for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.